together where two sides come together to find common ground. Today, we focus on what very well may be the most polarizing topic of our era, perhaps the most complex conflict in history, a conflict that has spanned over 100 years. And to many, it still seems like there's no end in sight. Today, we discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict. Not that that's rare. That's normally what we discuss here because it's so important. Today, we're going to get super practical. Often we speak of concepts like reconciliation and building a unified narrative, which is essential to solving the conflict. But we don't often get into the practical steps, what the solution looks like, how we could reach that solution. So that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to discuss. Before I introduce our guests, I just want to remind you all that after this discussion, which will last around an hour, we're going to move over to Discord for an after party where we're going to continue the conversation and where everyone can join. If you don't know what Discord is, join and you'll find out. And uh, there's a link in the description to our Discord. Maybe one of our awesome community members can uh, toss, a, toss a link in the, in the comment section as well so it's easy to get to. And uh, feel free to have a vibrant discussion in the comments as well. It's always appreciated. Keep it respectful, of course. If you like what our guests are saying, you can find their contact information in the description. If you like what you see, subscribe. We do this every week. Our goal is to unify people. And if you really like what you see, we have a Patreon where you could support us from as little as $1 a month and help us make more content and do, do more of the same amazing and inspiring uh, conversations. Any amount is appreciated. So without further ado, it's an honor to introduce our two guests. To my bottom left, Muhammad Khalaf, Palestinian from Janine, peace activist and a lawyer, a strong supporter of genuine Arab Jewish reconciliation, is currently studying conflict resolution and development at Trinity College, Dublin. And to my bottom right, Daniel Edelston. Is it Edelston or Edelstein? We'll go with Edelstein. You could correct Edelstein, me. Edelstein. 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 Yeah, you yeah, that yeah, way. I should have. Many pronunciations. <laughs> I'm still new at this. Well, I have like six months. Yeah. But, you know, fairly new. Is a Jewish. Daniel Edelstein is a Jewish issues writer, particularly, particularly interested in geopolitics, comparative inter-ethnic conflicts, uh, and Jewish theology. He majored in political science at Brooklyn College and plans to begin law school next year. He has written for the Jerusalem Post and has a blog at the Times of Israel. It's a pleasure to have you. And it seems like we lost Daniel. I hope yeah. he wasn't Do you hear me? By Do you messing hear me? up his name. Hmm? Do you hear me? <laughs> oh, Do you whoa. guys hear me? Yeah, but we don't see I can hear this you. Is never, this has never happened before. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I hear you guys also. I don't, I don't know where my camera yeah, is. Uh, yeah, Daniel, re just refresh. Re refresh and we should, should see you. Refresh. Now I see two of you. All That's right. odd. Um, hmm. Hmm. Interesting. As you all know, these technical difficulties are a common occurrence on The Great Debate because we use a shitty software called VLive. They have cool features. That's why I keep using them, but it's just a matter of time before I dump them for something better. If anybody has software recommendations, let me know. Uh, Daniel, do we see you? Hold on. We still don't see you. Yeah. There we go. You're back. You're welcome back. back. Okay. 
Bro, you, that, you that, jinxed that, that, me that, with the name. You messed up the name, and then I lost. Uh, I lost. I know. I, 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 I was. <laughs> I was worried that. I was worried that you got offended, and uh, just just bounced. So oh, yeah. I'm very happy you're still here with us. Um, yeah, cool. It's all good. I forgive you. So we are going. We are going to start by discussing what solution you'd like to see to the conflict. And then we're going to talk about practical steps as to how we can reach that solution. So, Daniel, uh, we'll start with you. Um, the floor is yeah. yours, my friend. All right. Yeah. So I don't I wouldn't say that, you know, I could just put forth a solution because, you know, <laughs> I'm just one person. And, you know, it's a country, millions of people. I don't even live in Israel. You know, I live in New York. So, you know, I can't go and just say that because ultimately this is going to be years and years until there's actually any sort of reconciliation and progress. And I'm sure whatever, you know, it culminates to will be something we can predict. But what I can say is I think the two-state model isn't going to be what the future of the land looks like. And I don't think it's sustainable either based on things like facts on the ground in terms of the amount of settlers who now live in the West Bank. The fact that I don't think many Jews who live in these areas are willing to forfeit it. I think these are very ideological and passionate people who will not just, you know, be moved out. And then the only viable solution actually ironically in my opinion is something like what the trump plan is in terms of a two-state solution because that's literally based on the new facts on the ground but but you see it's like a not sustainable plan it's basically just a bunch of bridges connecting and you know urban enclaves so i think the solution has to be something which does not remove anyone from their land which does not create more walls and borders and all these things, which in my opinion, just further exacerbate the conflict. So how that one state will look like is up for question. I personally don't think a sort of um, sterile one state solution in a Western democratic sense is a good plan for numerous reasons. So I think it has to be a solution which allows freedom of movement and capital but allows two polities to exist, a Jewish one and an Arab-Palestinian one. And I think that could take the form of some sort of federation, confederation. There's numerous models, but that's my general uh, pitch. Uh, thank you, Daniel. So, you know, it's interesting because I, I don't have, you know, I, I have... I try to remain agnostic when it comes to the solution. I, I could get behind many and I'm open to having guests from, you know, who will present any solution, but it seems like the vast majority of the guests we've had on, they're all talking about Federation, Federation, Federation. But if you, you know, if, if you speak to most, most Israelis, most Palestinians, most people abroad, it seems like the, the solution that is stuck in their mind is two state solution. So, so there's an interesting paradigm where, where most people only, see one solution as relevant, although they don't see it as viable. And then it seems like there's a movement of activists who are talking about something completely different. Um, so so it's, it's, it's interesting that that's the case. And it seems like Federation is gaining popularity day by day. I, I even have trouble finding people who, who 
will come on and make the case for two state solution. If anyone's watching and you want to come on and make the case for two states, I'd love to have you on. But I just wanted to share that observation. Um, thank you, Daniel. Mohammed, what, what are your thoughts on uh, what kind of solution you'd like to see? Okay, so I, I kind of agree with Daniel. Uh, first of all, I don't see uh, one state solution a possibility because for one state, you need to have a um, an enough common ground. And we don't have that in uh, Palestine, Israel. And I think it should be something in between because also a two-state solution does not seem uh, to be viable. Like a two-state solution in its traditional sense is going to be very difficult to implement. Daniel brought up the issue of the settlements. You have, even even if, even if uh, Palestinians and Israelis agree that we are going to keep the settlement blocks and then evacuate the, uh, uh, the smaller settlements and outposts, it's going to be very difficult if not impossible for any Israeli government, whether that's a right-wing center or left-wing government, to evacuate 80,000 people. Because we have seen what happened in Gaza in 2005. It was a very uh, difficult and polarizing process. So a two-state solution in its traditional sense based on these 67 lines is not possible anymore, I think. And a one-state solution is not possible. But not a federation as well. I would not say I would not say a federation is a solution because a federation. My understanding of a federation is that you have um, people who have equal rights within one political entity, like they have some form of equal rights. Federation can be like the Russian Federation. People in Chechnya and people in Moscow they have the same. Uh, the same set of rights, but they are in one political entity. Uh, I don't see I don't see that uh, that possible in uh, in Israel Palestine. So what I think is viable is something based on separation first, and then we find what like what we political separation. Like Palestinians need to know what is theirs, and Israelis need to know what is theirs. And what 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 piece of land, what um, political entity each one each one has, and based on that, say Palestinians knew that they they would get like eighty percent or ninety percent of those bank within like, and they would get uh, sovereignty over that and would be in a position to compromise on what they would be given control of, and then we we can see like what practical steps can be done in order to do this like co cooperation after the separation, but there needs to be line needs to be drawn. I was, I was muted. Um, so mm -hmm. that's interesting. You think there first needs to be some kind of separation, some kind of independence for Palestinians before something like a federation is viable. Mm -hmm. Daniel, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I I don't know about that specifically, but I, I, I definitely agree that there are many issues with the Federation. I, I know someone who 
Damn, I'm blinking on his name offhand, but he's one of the fam- I think it's actually. Sorry, can you yeah. can you repeat, please? Yeah, we lo- we lost you for a yeah, it, yeah, it's my. Let me open my. Let me open the door here. My work. My connection yeah, get that, to Wi-Fi get that, better. Get those Wi-Fi uh, rays coming in strong. I mean, I think it should be good. Is it better now? For now, yeah. Hopefully it stays Is it better way. now? All right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I basically agree with the general idea that a federation, if you were to include Gaza and then that, I think the elephant in the room in this whole reconciliation talk are two things. One, Gaza and to the refugees. And I think it's easy to just ignore it because like Gaza is like a de facto separate entity, which Israel basically, there's a blockade and, you know, there's there's many direct, you know, connections to the Israeli occupation and the, the IDF. And, but the thing is there's separation because it's not like there's soldiers inside. And it's easy to just, you know, there's like, there's the fence and then there's occasionally missiles and then there's count, you know, then there's counter strikes. But overall, I think there's like a, there's like a little bit of a, you know, pushing aside of Gaza and the public consciousness. And then there's the refugees, which is the case even more so because they're not on the ground. So it's like, why is Israel, why should Israel care about that? Because pragmatically, they don't need to deal with refugees in Lebanon, you know. But the thing is, even from a real politics standpoint, obviously any reconciliation process from the Palestinian side is going to want to talk about this. So now if you have a federation that includes Gaza and right of return, then Jews will be a minority. And I know there are some people on the sort of secular left who are like, okay, so what's the problem with that? And they sort of envision... Um, this sort of neutered, um, sterile um, Canada or United States, which is just not going to work in, a, in, in any inter-ethnic conflict because you can't uh, project egalitarian dynamics from somewhere like Canada or United States on inter-ethnic conflicts. It, it won't work in, you know, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It won't work in the former Yugoslavia. These people have, you know, conflict for decades they're not going to just kumbaya the next day and and get along you know there's so much um distrust and oh i just cut out again your video is gone again i'll I'll continue talking until until uh i'll continue talking until you turn it over Uh, um so yeah the thing is the federation plan to the extent that it works so I know if um, I read the plan and basically what it does is it's unilateral and it says not basically doesn't address Gaza or the refugees. Now, I think if Israel unilaterally does it, they could essentially turn West Bank Palestinians de facto into Israeli Arabs in the sense that the, the Palestinians in the 67 borders, meaning, quote unquote, Israel proper, I, there was a uh, military, you know, presence in all the Arab villages and everything in Israel until the 60s. So it's not like, you know, after the state, they became, you know, loving citizens. Um, It took a while for them to unilaterally be incorporated. And 
And I think Israel could do that with the West Bank if they do this sort of federation plan, but there will always be these outstanding issues that still need to be addressed and it won't be a proper full justice. So in my opinion, it just works better to have a sort of the, the benefits of a two state in terms of preserving the Jewish polity, but also um, not dealing with what I expect to be um, non-implementable uh, dynamics in a two-state and a lot of backlash and just further problems from the Palestinian side. I just don't envision their plight being better in a two-state dynamic. Uh, yeah, I, I hear you. I'm going to, I kind of do have a follow-up, but I'll, I'll give you time to to refresh. Refresh, yeah, let me do that. Let me do that. So, Mohammed, yeah. feel, feel free to respond to anything Daniel just said. But, but in addition to that, you know, you, you mentioned one state, not you. You think um, there's too much tension. We're we're too different at this point for one state to be viable. Um, you don't think two state is is viable either because of settlements. But neither neither is a federation. So what? Like, how do we make it work given given that dynamic? Is it more of a confederation where we, we don't uproot any, anyone from their homes? But, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to get a better understanding of, of how you think that would look if, if you see a major issue with with either, you know, all three of these these solutions. So um, what I meant by by like this entity that I'm thinking of. I don't have a very concrete plan of that, but it's based on a principle where you have two sovereign entities, two fully sovereign entities with borders, with um, with lines for each one. Uh, each, each entity, Israel, there's Israel and there's Palestine. And as like sovereign entities, they work through the issues that can't be separated, like the issue of border security, the issue of uh, Israeli uh, settlers or citizens existing in the in the West Bank. So this solution is uh, the issue of uh, economic cooperation, the issue of security cooperation. So you have two equal, two equal entities, and those entities. Uh, should reach understandings and agreements on issues that can't be separated. I hear you. So se- separate what can and, and what can't will we'll need to, you know, we'll, we'll need to work together y- using, using that paradigm. Okay. I, I I hear that. Maybe we'll get into a few more okay. details in a few minutes. I do want to hear from Daniel. Yeah, do, do, you, cut out. do you understand Mohammed's um, point about um, Palestinians needing independence before federation is uh, is viable? Or do, or do you think that's something that can happen even with the federation? Uh, I think it could in principle happen with the federation. I just don't see both sides agreeing to it or or envision it working in a egalitarian manner like i i just don't see that a state where one side especially really believes in the you know jewishness of the state and as as a sort of security backup for the preservation of the jewish people 
And I just don't see like a 50-50 demographic working equally for, for, for both sides. So I would, um, I myself think a confederation idea is better. I, the thing is, I just wouldn't agree with a, with a confederation that's just okay. Like, you know, there's, there's international and there's a, there, you know, the diplomats from Ramallah and from Jerusalem are signing papers. And then they're like, okay, we're going to see you the West Bank. And then we just let a Palestinian government emerge. Because I, I just imagine that that will be very likely a sort of Gaza 2.0 situation. And best case scenario, it'll be like a Jordan 2.0. But um, I think that's just a realistic um, assessment of, of the matter. So I, I, would, I would support... Um, Israel sort of unilaterally working to sort of change the the dynamics on the ground where they gradually incorporate uh, the West Bank into a sort of coexisting economy and uh, education system, whatever it is, uh, with Israel. And I, don't, and I don't think this will be protested by Palestinians because right now Israel, I mean, they don't control their internal affairs, but Israel has a de facto occupation in the West Bank. So it's not like, it's not like they're just, you know, um, invading Gaza or something like that, um, where they don't already have a existing presence on the ground. They already do. So any movement from Israel that shows good faith and isn't perceived as, oh, now they're demolishing my home. Now they, you know, now they're building more settlements. Anything that's actually like moving the Palestinian society more towards benefits, towards a brighter future. I, I mean, I just don't see that as, as having any negative side. So, and I think it's possible. But yeah, that's my take. Okay, Muhammad, do you agree with that? Um, I don't agree with the unilateral with the unilateral approach yeah. because I think, and I think it's impractical because. Mm-hmm. If Israel acts unilaterally uh, towards certain things, you are going to see a response from the political leadership of the Palestinians. And uh, this is not going to help uh, solving problems because there's a political like leadership or uh, there is leads uh, that re- represent the Palestinian people. and each, um, you should talk to you should uh see you should uh act in a act in collaboration with you can't just uh, act unilaterally because sometimes unilateral actions can bring uh very negative and very uh, serious consequences mm-hmm. yeah that, you, you know that that's a fair point you could see that any you unilateral Unilateral action would would create some form of resistance from from the PA. Um, Daniel, do you see any like what, what what's an example of a uni, unilateral move that could be made that that you All think right, would? So, so I mean, I don't like disagree with Muhammad per se. Like, I don't think Israel is should like just go into Area A, uh, which let's say has the highest degree of internal Palestinian autonomy, and just do whatever first of all i don't think they could do that because they don't have like the same control they have in in like area c or area b but let's say area c right that has 
a minority of the Palestinian population. It's where like basically all the settlements are. And it's where the majority of the actual geographic territory of the West. So if Israel just did anything towards incorporating these, these areas, then it wouldn't be in a total assessment, like completely unilateral, because eventually if the, if the status quo becomes that, that these areas are now sort of further incorporated into Israel, then, then the idea is like, you, or like you could do it in area B, I think, to a more limited degree, because Israel still has security control over there. But then eventually, there could be a solution where basically um, there's already a status quo of normalization, and then then they could negotiate with the leadership in area C and things like that. And actually, this is very interesting because um, the Trump administration did something pretty similar to this in regards to Kosovo. So Kosovo is an area which was an autonomous region in in um, Serbia under former Yugoslavia. And then when Yugoslavia um, got dismantled and all the you know states got balkanized and broke up. So uh, a little bit after that, then uh, Kosovo, which is like 90 percent like ethnic Albanians, uh, basically unilaterally seceded and they declare independence. Half the world countries recognize Kosovo's independence and half don't. And Serbia still claims, you know, the um, rights to the land, even though de facto they have no control over it. So the Trump administration really recently did like a trade normalization uh, deal between the both sides where it doesn't require any precondition of, let's say, um, it doesn't require any preconditions for, for Serbia to recognize Kosovo, but there's like econ- economic liberalization and freedom of movement and things. I, I don't know the exact nature of the plan, but the idea is economic normalization. And after that, you know, there could be some sort of um, reconciliation. And I think there's also these ideas with like states who are, who are candidates for the European Union. A lot of times they have like a lot of Balkan states like Serbia um, et cetera, are also candidates for the European Union, but they have to resolve these issues. So sometimes when you could resolve things like this, then eventually they may be able to like join the European Union together and then the borders become less of an issue because the EU has freedom of movement. Like like I actually wrote in my first article for my Times of Israel blog that that like any a confederation could operate like um like the European Union in the sense that okay, so the settle the settlers, let's say are under Palestinian jurisdiction, but only in terms of like taxes and things like that. But they could be Israeli citizens and easily travel back and forth because there's no border. So both populations have the right to live in the other in the other's territory, even if they're citizens of their respective polity. So I, that's what I mean by unilateral. I don't mean, and I don't mean anything negative. I mean the only. Also, I don't suspect that that Israel's able to do something bilaterally. With the Palestinian leadership, and and this is not to say that that I blame the Palestinian leadership, but uh, the bottom line, and I don't think Israel is some like angelic, you know, force of pure good and all that, but they're the hegemony, and they have the ability to do it unilaterally. So just me as an observer, as someone who's interested in Jewish prosperity in the area and things like that, I would I would say that if they do it gradually like that, that that's a sustainable pathway forward but i don't mean that like in the entirety of everything it's going to all be unilateral 
Yeah, that's nice. And you, you want to follow up on that, uh, Muhammad, or? Uh, just like just a just a small just a small point here. I think that yes, uh, uh, Daniel talked about economic reconciliation between Kosovo and Serbia, and I think this would be a very uh, important aspect of any any solution or trust building efforts, because now economics and economy is very very. important important if not most important issue for so many people and they're willing to compromise um politically to a certain extent they the people are willing to compromise to a certain extent on the uh, political issues if the economic incentives are like very good but nothing in the way that trump suggested or not in the way that uh, netanyahu suggested like uh, the economic solution, an economic solution as a replacement of a political solution, but the, eco the economics to have a great potential. Agreed. Do, do, do you all have you know an idea for for something that we can do tomorrow that that either government you know Daniel you mentioned that Israel is is in a position of more power and that they could probably do more. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas for for policies that get can be passed tomorrow that can help begin this process? Um, yeah. So one thing which is pretty interesting is uh, you know Yehuda Cohen brings this up. Yehuda Cohen is like a religious um, a religious settler and, and who, sorry, sorry, who's, speak yeah. up a little bit. It's a little bit low. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Do you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. That better, yeah, cut out a little bit by me too. So Yehuda Cohen is a religious uh, settler in the West Bank, but he's uh he's a he's he's like very pro one state solution, like legit, like right of return, this and that. And so in his own consciousness, he he has a an, uh, he has a take on the conflict, which is like agreeable with the most left wing Palestinian. I totally have a lot of respect for him, but I don't agree fully with his practical solution. But something he pointed out within that paradigm, which I found very interesting, is he basically said, what if Israel just started paying, um, you know, Palestinian Authority, um, you know, officials, well, not officials, but, you know, any, anyone who works for the PA, um, give them an Israeli salary. So you're a police officer in the PA, mail them a check that you'll pay to a cop who works in, in Tel Aviv. And you don't have to take away their PA salary. You just give it to them. And you know, no preconditions. Don't say you have to do this. Just a good faith gesture. For once, the Palestinians will be like, this is a total plus. You know, we're getting a much better salary. We're, we're not having experience with Israel, which is purely negative, which is not, you know, soldiers or a new settlement uh, that cuts off our, you know, water, land and all that. Have a positive, genuine experience with Israel. And then this is this is what I mean by like a unilateral thing. It's not like unilateral, like unilaterally go and occupy the area and take out. It's like unilateral motions, which which, OK, I'm sure the PA leadership might might not like that because maybe, you know, they have their hegemony and they want to like keep their positions and all that. But for the overall Palestinian people, I think that's a, that, that's a good thing. And, and another thing I would just say is like, 
even small things which are not like solution oriented, but it, it is like cultural normalization. It's like, for example, like most Israelis don't know Arabic. Um, and especially that like 60% of the Israeli Jewish population have like grandparents who spoke who spoke Arabic, sometimes the first language, or at least the great-grandparents and things like that. Um, so I think there should be a revival of um, genuinely teaching Arabic. And, and I think most Israeli public schools do teach it as like an optional second language, but it's like a joke. No one like actually learns it. So if you like taught Arabic to Jewish students to the same extent that Israeli Arabs know Hebrew, which is pretty solid, um, you're not going to solve anything, but you are going to create, you are going to break a little bit of that separation and the otherness and, and not knowing the other side. So those are like two things I think, but like, it's just general idea, you know, the whole check thing that just uh, a practical manifestation that I just, you know, took from you, who does that? But I, but I think that's a general gist of uh, things that could, you know, be moving forward. Thank you. Hold on real quickly. My uh, my roommate uh, boiled a potato and he forgot about it. He left. So it started the water, you know, evaporating. <laughs> How's he doing? You don't cook potatoes on Thursday night in this apartment. This is time for the discussion. Anyways, uh, quick, quick intermission. Uh, First of all, we it seems we have a lot more viewers than people who have either upvoted or downvoted this video. So express yourself. I don't care what you do, upvote, downvote, just express yourself. We want to see, we want to see that expression. Daniel should be back with us momentarily. Uh Muhammad, is there anything you wanted to follow up? Follow up on? Uh yeah, I thought like some some of the if we are like at this stage now, if I can talk about the uh, some of the practical steps that can be taken, can I? Yeah, sure, sure. Let, let's let's yeah. get to okay, that. okay, perfect. So I think the first thing is like there is something there are things that uh, the governments can do in order to minimize the intensity of the conflict. The first thing is like a requirement from the Israeli side is that Israel needs to draw the lines of like, where, where, where are, are your borders? Where are you going to stop? What do you want exactly? What is your policy? Because the current Israeli policy of allowing very rapid settlement expansion, I haven't researched that, but from what I hear from uh, Palestinian officials, I don't know if that's a, a neutral source, they say that expansion of Israeli settlement is much higher than any like normal expansion in any Western city like New York. So Israel needs to um, mind that and needs to know where it stops and needs to stop outposts and these like um, these people who take uh, take over hills and then it, it becomes a settlement later and land confiscation uh, wh whatsoever. Because I, I think this is important. Israel should, must do that because people would, like the Palestinian people would feel that we can wait. You know, we don't need to be in a conflict. We don't we don't need to like support terrorism. We don't need to 
because we can wait. Maybe something will change. But I think what what makes it very difficult for uh, peace supporting Palestinians to uh, promote their views or to do something is that it's it's ongoing. You know, you don't know. Like we feel that we are losing and losing and losing and losing. This is on the Israeli government, but the the Palestinian government has a responsibility. The Palestinian government should help the Israeli government do that by changing its thinking from the absolute mentality. It's either we take everything or nothing to a transitional mentality. Because what the the Israeli government is saying, okay, we are like enjoying. Why do we need to change our policies? For Netanyahu, settlers are more important than the feelings of the Palestinians because we are not the ones who vote for him. It's the settlers. So I think the Palestinian Authority should embarrass him with practical transitional proposals, concrete, solid, implantable proposals. Thank you. Thank you, Muhammad. Um, so, so, Daniel, we're, we're talking about uh, practical first steps, and, and Muhammad, I think that's a great start. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Daniel? Um, I think I touched upon like the basic idea beforehand. Um, as for drawing borders, the only thing is that what borders will they draw? Because let's say they drew, so this also touches back onto the like theoretical confederation model, which is will the confederation model be like based on 67 borders and therefore, but the fact that it is 67 borders is not that relevant and not the same concern as traditional model because hey anyways um there's freedom of movement and all that right um the thing is i just can't see like as an early step is really okay our borders is 67 borders i mean east jerusalem the jewish quarter uh you know Hebron. i just don't see these things like israel like formally basically saying this is in your territory but I'll say that that I think a more important step than these symbolic gestures would be, for example, Palestinian building permits. Palestinian building permits in Area C in East Jerusalem, high rates of rejection of citizenship application in East Jerusalem. So like Israel's argument is basically what the West being for in Oh, Daniel, you froze. While Daniel's back, I'm going to announce that this is the last week we're using BeLive. BeLive, you're fired. You're fired. And it seems like after this week, Trump is also fired. Um, time will tell. I wanted to bring Yeah, up, hopefully. Oh, my God. Okay. Like yeah. I'm so sorry. I don't know my connection. Oh, cutting out. All good. All, all right. All good. Um, so, yeah, just continuing where I left off. Uh, hold up, what was that? <laughs> oh, yeah, so these are, I think, more important than than uh, symbolic gestures of, okay, this is where the borders are. But within the pragmatic things of what Mohammed said in terms of drawing the borders, I think when people talk about, like, settlement freezes, um, I, I don't know if I like support, like, a total settlement freeze, but, like, there should be, there shouldn't be, I don't think there should be expansion beyond the main settlement blocks. I, in my ideal world, there will be able to be like no no limit to to Jew, and there will be no limit to to 
the Arab population and their areas expanding. It, it will just, I mean, it will be regulated by laws, like the way it's regulated, you know, here in New York, it's not like, you know, there's laws and so, but um, I think the main thing, which will be also less controversial is just approving more Palestinian permits. I think that's better than just saying, okay, Jews can't live in the, build in the West Bank. But again, and that will, I, I that mean- will eventually be part of it, I think. Go ahead, Mom. Just a small clarification here. I, I meant yeah. when I said like drawing the lines, I meant the lines, not the borders. So people know when I drive in the West Bank, like at the heart of the West Bank, I know that this is like where likely Israel is going to stop. This is where likely the Palestinian entity or the Palestinian heart or the Palestinian political repre- representation, whether it's now or in the future, is going to be. There, there's a feeling that Israel is not going to stop anywhere. We're like we hear, oh, like Israel is building a major road and investing millions for like a road in uh, the heart of the West Bank between Her- near Hawara and Yitzhar and these areas. Like, why are you, like these? This is what I mean. We need to know where Israel stops. Yeah, you know, I think it, what is reserved to our, to us even in the future, even after a hundred years, there's something something should be right. reserved. Uh, no, I, I I hear I hear that it's a it's a legit uh, claim. I think there's an issue, and it's something I've really real, realized in recent months, just from having these conversations. But there's not much to get Israelis motivated to to act uh, for some kind of peace solution. So. You know, obviously, when when there's terror attacks, when there's war, we're de- we're definitely reminded of the conflict. But then life goes on like usual. We live our lives as as normal. We don't need to wait at checkpoints. We're not constantly remembered that we're in conflict with one another. And you know, we also it's such a complex conflict that most people don't really have any idea how to solve. It's hard to get people to act for a solution that seems unsolvable when it doesn't even affect them day day to day. So it's like, on one hand, there's an expectation for Israel to be the one to act because they have the power. But in another sense, it's almost like Palestinians should be the one to act because they are the ones that are affected every single day by this conflict, you know, every single day that they feel it. So, and, and, you know, people say, but why should we, we're, we're oppressed, but it's not about, righteousness it's about solutions right we're, we're looking for progress so it's like how do we convince israelis to act and if if the citizens don't care enough it's hard to expect politicians to care enough because politicians are just thinking about you know how to keep the people happy in order to get reelected so so it, it's tricky and this this is a you know a challenge that i personally don't have don't have uh concern uh don't have a, a solution for it's possible that if there's enough international pressure to um you know, for Israel to do something, it could work. Potentially, if we have very bold leadership. Then, you know, someone will step up to the plate and say, that's it. We're, we're going to find a solution to this. Or if we get to the point where, um, you know, it's just you, you, you begin to have, you know, de facto apartheid where it, it's just you, you need you need to you need to solve it. Like right now, it, there, there's a separation. So it's almost like we 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 justify inequality between Israelis and Palestinians because the narrative is well is Israeli Arabs are equal to Palestinians 
Palestinians, well, they're under PA rule and, you know, they're our enemies. So obviously we need checkpoints. So if, if that situation on the ground becomes unsustainable for some, for some reason, then it could cause Israel to act. But it's not like there's a, there's a clear way how to get, how to get Israelis to act uh, to some kind of a solution. It seems like, you know, the, the, the energy for change exists amongst the Palestinians currently today, right? Any form of resistance that we see is an energy, is energy behind change. The question is, how can we take that existing energy and direct it in a way that can inspire Israelis and Israel to care? So some would say, well, you know, violent resistance, right? If, if we're violent and that will get them to understand that it's unsustainable. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that violence should always be a last resort. And imagine if there was a mass, mass peaceful resistance, like, like massive, right? And, and again, I understand that this that this concept sounds very foreign um, to, to many people, to many yes. Palestinians. Just just saying yes. it sounds nice. It's not a realistic expectation. I realize that. So I'm, I'm not just saying it's on you to deal with this. It, it, we, we, we need to work on this together. But I, I do wonder how we could take existing energy that already exists on the Palestinian side and, and direct it in a way that can that can help revitalize whatever, whatever movement um, for a peaceful solution for a solution. And I think that we, we should aim to do it peacefully. Just some thoughts, feel free to. Um, I think it's a very difficult. Yeah. Oh, my mic just got disconnected. Yeah. Mohammed, like what, what do you we think you. the main in what I said was? I think it's a very difficult, like when it comes to directing this energy, it's very difficult to see how can this energy that exists in, in Palestinians be directed towards uh, like pushing or in, inspiring uh, Israelis for uh, to work for a solution. Because as you said, like this concept of peaceful resolution is very, uh, like is very foreign. When you saw, you remember the march of return, from like uh, of Gaza, of the Gaza Strip. The idea, the core concept of it was to show the world that like the refugees in Gaza want to return. Okay, but the fact that like it's not in the culture, it's not like something like a peaceful demonstration is not in the culture. When people went and many people got close to the border, they started throwing rocks and uh, stones and jumping over the border. Some of them threw bombs. So I think it's, it's very difficult to know, like, how. Is there any, is there any like, counterculture amongst Palestinians that's, that's pushing for, for this uh, peaceful revolution of sorts that you know of? Uh, yes, I think it's it's international. It's not working like in a. It's not working um, like inspiring Israelis. The emerging culture among Palestinians is how to now is how to like trash Israel's image in inter- and use international mechanisms to fight off Israeli oppression and occupation. It's the main like the main like counterculture. It's either violence or international stuff. 
This is what you, I you're saying. You, you're saying the, the 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 peaceful aspect of resistance is, for example, BDS, some some kind of an international play in order to create pressure on on Israel in order to take action. Um, it's it's part of it. Like Palestinians who are abroad, they are all like pushing for such a things like BDS. Uh, like international journalists um, speaking for Palestine, all of these things. But Palestinians inside inside the, the West Bank and Gaza are not really, like, they believe it's either, I think most of them believe it's either violence or nothing, and now they are choosing nothing. But not BDS and these things, because if you go to any Palestinian house, it's not strange that, uh, like to find Israeli products and stuff. They they, they don't like uh, act by the message of PDS. Most of them don't. I hear you. I, I hear you. Uh, D- Daniel, do, do you think there's anything we could do to get Israelis to, to, to act, to get the Israeli government to act? First, it goes without saying that, that these discussions is part of the process. You know, it inspires people. It gives people hope. Most people don't have hope that the conflict could be solved. So when they, when they can see, you know, a respectful and civilized conversation between an Israeli and a Palestinian or, or a, a Jew and a Palestinian, then it, it inspires hope. But how can we really turn this into something scalable, something that really, you know, changes the dynamic on the ground that really gets Israelis and the Israeli government to act? Yeah. So as a prelude to the answer to that, I just wanted to touch upon something you talked about earlier, which is that when you were talking about, upon who is the responsibility to change the status quo. Uh, I agree with you that for Israel, it's uh, it's very um, sustainable, meaning Israel is continuing to, you know, develop its economy. Now it's even normalizing unilaterally with Arab states without Palestinian uh, input. And the violence from the West Bank, even though there's every year there's terrorist attacks, you know, it's not close to intifada levels and it hasn't been like when was the last time there was like a suicide um bombing you know things like that so the intensity of the of the resistance is not what it was decades ago and israel is increasingly normalizing with uh the region and and its economy is advancing its tech industry and all these things so i agree that it, it could um it could get away with it more without feeling it. The thing is, when there's terrorist attacks, and it's like, why aren't you peaceful? You know, why, why are you resorting to terrorism? But in the interim, it's not like Israel's rushing to alleviate the problem. Like Israel's content, you know, to... Again, I'm not, I'm not saying from the Israeli side, there's no basis to say, oh, we... But like, I've noticed like in recent discourse, a lot of the rhetoric is like, we, we offer the Arabs to stay four or five different times. And um, there's all these things, but uh, but the thing is, there's obviously for many years been uh, pause and even trying to present the image that anyone cares about. So just to be fully candid and not like go down this kumbaya route, I think we have to be honest about the fact that realistically, it might take some destabilizing event for for people to act. The only thing is, when there's let's say terrorism and things like that, then the Israeli public becomes more reactionary. They become, you know, that that's why the left is basically dead in Israel, because I think ever since Begin, um, 
and and especially since the intifadas <clears throat> and the second one specifically, there's just like a lack of trust in like any sort of egalitarian left leftist sort of thing. I, I'm personally not a leftist, but I'm just talking about from like let's say the Israeli public. This is the so for instance, uh, as like a cross comparative reference, um, in you know the recent flare ups between Armenia and Azerbaijan. This is a fro- this was a frozen conflict for 27 years, which for the most part has had a f- occasional skirmishes and things like that. But for the most part, de facto existed as a stable, you know, state, which was just not recognized. But it was like de facto connected to Armenia and they were, you know, living their lives. Everything. And then now there's there was an incursion and now there's every military is like uh, there's a lot of casualties, but they're gaining territory and they're making advances. And this is like causing a lot of activism. And now like a lot of the, there was like this thing called the OSCE uh, Minsk group, which was like the international organization that was in charge of, you know, dealing with this conflict. And it was just a failure because uh, like I was reading an article about some of the failures of it. And it was basically because they had this image of neutrality, which is we can't, you know, present any solution and let the sides figure it out. And their sides are always pushing for what's best for them. So, and, and, and the Armenian side was able to afford to not cede anything. So they were able, but now if, if there's um, enough of destabilization and threat, there may be like a push for a solution, which, which both sides have to compromise for, but it ultimately took an invasion of the Zari military and many bodies for this to even like reemerge so I don't think this is happening tomorrow. There, there's a chance that it may, there may be a lot of destabilization, God forbid, but I could see that happening, which will propel. But in the meantime, obviously, I don't prefer that being the, the trajectory. So I think there, there should be more conversations like this. There should be. Um, I also think it's important to know that, like, the average Israeli was, like, living in, like, Tel Aviv and Haifa and, like, central Israel. I think they're, like, in my experience, pretty apolitical. Like, I see a lot of, um, you could see this in the Corey Ask projects, you know, where they go around asking Israel. Like, a lot of them don't even have opinions. And I feel like a lot of the most opinionated people are, like, people in the, like, American diaspora among Jews. And like Olim, who moved to Israel, and West Bank settlers. So there's already a minority of the Jewish population who have like a disproportionate amount of influence of what happens, especially in places like the West Bank, because your average like Sabra secular Israeli is not living in the West Bank. So, so you already have a small niche where you could like have a lot of agency within that demographic without relying on the like general Israeli public. So I think that's a, that's a good thing. So, um, I'm with you on that. So we're, we're getting up on an hour already. We're going to take, I guess, two audience questions. Then we're going to move it over to the after party. Can someone, uh, so, can one of our community members please share the discord link in the, in the chat so people can join and start asking questions and you will both have an opportunity for final thoughts on air. There'll be many other thoughts in the after party. I will bring this up food for thought. Adar, are you reading the comments? So, look, I, I don't multitask well, and my, my focus in general just is not not great. So needing to focus closely on what the guests say and what's going on in the comments section is extremely difficult. 
That being said, I do make an effort to do so, and it gets easier every week. Literally, I have new neural pathways because of this weekly debate, which is cool. Neuroplasticity, look it up. It's awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I am reading. I, I see it. I see it. So feel free to share your thoughts. Oh, and look, we just got a follow-up. Oh, you, you read my mind, bro. We, yeah, we do this every week. We do take some, uh, some questions, but, but join the Discord because that's really, that's where it happens. Not, not, to, not to minimize what we do here. It's just there. It's a community session. I, I, I did see, actually, uh, Food for Thought. Just, food for Thought's his name. I'm not saying this is Food for Thought, but Food for Thought. Just, you know, I did see at the beginning you asked uh, what, what the issues with a one-state solution is. So I, I, let, let's start with that question. And you know, bo- bo- both of you can, can share your thoughts. I try to leave the response to just one to two minutes so we can you know, get another question, then we'll move over to the after part. What, so the question is, what is wrong with the one state solution? Why can't we just, you know, live together? This is for both of you. I mean, I can, I can answer it, but you know, <laughs> no, I wasn't sure it's going on. You want to go through? Hello, you guys hear me? About like why? What's the? What are the issues with the two-state solution? Uh, yes. Uh, no, well, well, our friend, our friend, food for thought. He asked. Sorry, I actually don't know if he, she, or they, but um, they asked us what what the solution is what what's wrong with a one-state solution why why both of you think a one-state solution can't work simply because there's not enough common ground if you hear uh, like now the discussion within academic and and practical uh, within academic and practical circles about what is the problem with western democracies now for example what's the problem with the like United States and polarization, they say if there is not enough common ground, democracies get destroyed. So there's not enough common ground already, and the differences are too broad between Palestinians and Israelis when it comes to the way of life, when it comes to how they understand democracy, how they understand community, culture, everything. So, and history, conflict, we can't just be in one democracy. You, you think there would be like too too much of a demographic battle on on di- you know yeah there would be like polarized if, if you look at the Knesset you have like sixty Jewish members and sixty Arab members and they are like waiting for each other to pass like a bill that is going to rock the other side you know and they are going to go yeah. we see like we see it in Northern Ireland here their government they set like power sharing mechan- mechanism uh, the uh, Stormont executive as I remember. And uh, from 2017 to 2000 and uh, mid-2020, it was just off. Like It was shut down because they would not agree on anything, just because there are two different uh, ethnic groups, religious. Daniel, you want to share? Thanks, Mohamed. Yeah, I completely agree <laughs> with Mohamed. Um, 
So yeah, mom is in Ireland currently. So obviously you have the north over there where where there was, you know, the troubles uh for for decades and then they forgot what the name of the peace agreement was, but basically I think what it allowed the Good Friday. Was, good Friday agreement, correct. Right, right. Good reminder. Thanks. <laughs> um so they had the Good Friday Agreement, which I think allowed um they remained within the the United Kingdom, right? Because the Catholics were trying to join you know their brethren in the republic and unify ireland and the and the protestants there who i think i i don't know if now but at the time had a slight majority wanted to remain part of the united kingdom so they had a solution where basically it's like there won't be borders there'll be like freedom of movement i think both populations could get irish citizenship um so especially now there was a big issue because of the european brexit and everything but before there was like you know, the, the, the ideas with Brexit is like there can't be a hard border because now it's like, OK, you're not legally under you don't pay taxes to Ireland, but, you know, you could drive there just as if it was part of Ireland and you have freedom of movement. And this, and even with that, there's so much crap and so much conflict. Yes. And I, if, you want, if you want if you want another best if you want another best case uh, scenario, look at uh, look at Belgium. I mean, that, this is like. This is like Brussels is like the center of the European Union, and yet within within Bel- Belgium itself, right? You have the the Dutch who um, live in the north and the French who live in the south, and Brussels is you know kind of like their Jerusalem. It's like the center and it's mixed, and they're constantly never passing anything because both national communities are always boycotting each other. I, I have a Serbian friend who I talk to a lot about like uh, the Balkans and former Yugoslavia and. So I'm very interested in comparative conflicts because I think it's important to, you know, they say, why do we learn history to learn from it? So I think it's also the same things with geopolitics. I said, basically, after the Balkan, after the Yugoslav Wars, um, independent Bosnia, which is basically 50 percent Muslim. So I say Muslim because in uh, in Bosnia, um, there's not really a distinct ethnic group called Bosnians. They're basically they're just like south slavs like similar to serbians who like under the ottomans became muslim so they're called like bosniaks or muslims that's like their own community and they're like 50 to 55 percent they have like a slight majority and the rest of the the country are like croats and and serbs and the serbs live in their own area and it's like a federation and what it allows is all three communities to have a veto um and apparently they're constantly vetoing each other. Like, um, I think the Bosniaks want recognition of the, of the Serbia, like that the Serbs like massacred, genocided them and, and the Serbs boycott that. And then, and then the Serbs who live in their area, uh, I think it's called Republika Sprska. So it's like bordering Serbia. Um, but it's a de jure part of the territory of, of uh, Bosnia. And, and they want to, like, create a more open border. This, and then the Muslims boycott it. And then the Croats have their, I think they, I think maybe it's actually the Croats. They wanted to, like, recognize that the Croats had, like, concentration camps against Serbs in World War II. And they're boycotting it. So there's, like, it's, it's you just see in everywhere, even, like I said, Belgium, best case scenario, first world country, wealthy, you know, center of European Union. You know, they just don't get along. So how much more so in like our conflict, which is more like, I think the better parallel is like Azerbaijan and Armenia. They're, they're not exactly friends. What happened with Azerbaijan and Armenia, it was 
this crazy story, but for example, it was this Iran and uh, Azeri soldier. I think they were doing a program in uh, in uh, Hungary for some international organization, NATO, uh, even though they're not part of NATO, like, I don't know, maybe it was NATO coordination. And there was an Azeri, there was an Azeri soldier who, um, who went in the middle of the night and, and just beheaded, like hacked to death and beheaded um, an Armenian who was doing the program with him. I, they went by for days, you know, no issues. He just randomly went into his room and then he went with his axe to another room and was trying to, he was like, and and their roommates were there and he's like, I don't want to, I don't want to harm anyone else. I'm just looking for Armenians. Like he didn't harm anyone else and he was trying to go to someone else's room. He was going to kill someone, another Armenian on the program, but the door was locked. And this is the sort of, this is the more comparable, you know, scenario. Like there was this famous thing with the, during the second intifada where two soldiers, you know, made a wrong turn and they ended up in Ramallah. And then, you know, there, there was just uh, a lynching. And then there was like a famous picture where the guy put his hands up. And I, 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 I would say that when I study these other conflicts, I guess the reassuring thing is I realized that like, you know, I have this like generational thing of like Jews, like everyone's always killing. We're always trying to survive. And you know, as a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, like this is the mentality. But then when I see these other conflicts, it's like, okay, this is still true. We're still always trying to survive. But like, at least like, it's like rational and not rational in the sense that I agree with the logic behind it, but in the sense that I see the psychological human dynamic in these other conflicts. So I, I personally think that Jews and Arabs are a lot more compatible culturally and theologically and this is my experience. I've never had an issue, but that's because, like, I'm aware of the culture. You know, I study, not that I'm particularly good at it, but like, I study Arabic and I sometimes talk with people in a little bit of Arabic and I know a lot about Islam. So, like, they're, they're, these in my personal individual experience, I, I've noticed that, that there's a lot of compatibility, I think more so than some of these other conflicts. But on a, on a national level, I just see it more like the Azerbaijan Armenian thing. And yeah, there has to be some sort of, there has to be reconciliation, but in the process where we could breathe and normalize and not just, uh, cause it won't happen organically. There has to be some room for separation and breathing and then like gradual. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Can yeah. I, can, can I yeah. like grab the, just summarize three quick steps, what I think. Yeah, well, I want to add one more thing to the to the one state, and then you can you can say what you want to say, and that, that, that those will be your final thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. Just just one thing: why one state currently is probably the least viable solution. It's important to understand that no 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 country no, no people feel comfortable becoming a demographic minority, going from being a majority to a minority. And part of part of the trauma that Palestinians have is exactly that. It's it's being a, a demographic majority and then becoming a minority. So th- this is something that's true across the board. No one wants to become a demographic minority. But take into account that it's not only becoming a dem- demographic minority, it's becoming a demographic minority amongst people who you have 100 years of conflict with. And then add to that centuries of collective trauma from persecution, pro- pogroms, and genocides, 
getting getting Israelis to agree to a one state solution, which would create a demographic issue, is it, it's so unrealistic. It's not even worth consideration at this point. That being said, after a few generations of peace and living amongst one another as brothers and sisters, then it is viable. But it's not. We we won't start with a one state solution. We could we could end with it. Uh, so. With that, uh, Muhammad, the floor is yours. Final thoughts, and then we will take it to the after party. Absolutely, agree. Okay, so wh- what I see the practical steps. The practical steps must be taken primarily by governments, the Israeli government, sh- and the Palestinian uh, Authority should draw the lines, like the basic lines: what is your territory and what is mine, or will be mine in any future solution. Um, second. Uh, Companies and uh, economy should be involved. People should see more opportunities so that they are less polarized and less concerned and more tolerant. And um, then from that, we can governments also should educate for peace. And uh, uh, that can mean so many things. That's it. Thank you, Mohammed. Daniel, uh, final thoughts, uh, one, to, one to two minutes, please, mm-hmm. and then what, whatever else we'll take to the after party. Um, yeah, I think regarding just my assessment of the situation, I think that's all uh, was already said uh, beforehand. I just, uh, I'm just like looking at the comments on this. I know there's a lot of them, but but uh, there's two two comments I just wanted to tie together as as let's say my time slot for the final thought. One was someone's talking about when I talked about um, normalization and all that and paying the salaries. They're like um, they're, that was done before the intifada and the intifada and the walls occurred after the intifada. And this is um, why there's a separation barrier and all that. And and then I don't know if it's the same person. Someone else said. Uh, the solution will start when Arabs start viewing Jews as indigenous to the land. Now, I wanted to tie this in to point out that it is 100% true that that's why the uh, barrier was created. Before that, there was there were Israelis who would drive into Palestinian cities and, you know, go shopping there and this and that. But um, I, what, I would address both of those by pointing out that I think that we are at a point in the in the consciousness of both people where I personally don't think, yes, there are like extremists who are like, oh, you know, go back to Europe, this and that. But I, I have seen a lot of Palestinian activists who, who recognize Jewish rights. They just say that it shouldn't come at the expense of their rights, which often it does by definition. Whereas I don't think that was the perception in the Palestinian consciousness, in the early Yeshuv movement, where it was like, you know, these uh, secular kibbutzim that were that were popping up. And, and then again, I think it was the reactionary sentiment you talked about, which is human nature in general. It's like when your hegemony is threatened, even if they're purchasing the land, or and we could talk about whether that was actually destabilizing. But even if you do it in the most kosher way possible, and this and that, like, no one is going to agree to having a bunch of, when I say foreigners, I don't mean people don't have like roots there, but like who are like coming from elsewhere into their state. It's just, it, this would occur with any people. It could, you know, the palace could be Japanese or Indian. It, it would, the same exact thing would, would happen. Um, 
Sorry, am I still? Uh, we still hear you. It's all good. All right, we hear you. And be live is fired. Yeah. So uh, hopefully next time if we do this, it won't keep cutting out. But um, yeah. Yeah. So where where was I on the the last thing I was talking about? I just lost. It. Um, oh yeah. So so I don't think this. Uh, I think when people are talking about what about this and, the, and 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 again, I see this happening all the time when I when I see Azerbaijanis and Armenians, they talk they, they talk about like all these massacres that they mutually did against each other, Armenia, you know, in each other's territories against the ethnic minority. And I think when people talk about the the Intifada and and you know that's why we have a wall and and people don't accept us as there, I think these things have been changing for the better. Now I'm not saying that it's all you know, kumbaya, it's not at all. But I don't think that, I think that the Palestinian population has, has already realized that Jews are not going anywhere. And they have to operate from that reality. Whereas I think early on, like before pre-state Israel and until 67, it was like a complete, like kick them out, this and that. So I, I would, as for like the wall, I mean, there. Like there was a recent story where Israel allowed thousands of Palestinians in, and you know they were posting videos going to the beach and and you know in uh, in Akka and in uh, in Yaffa and all these places you know that were in Israel proper but are um, had historical you know Palestinian I, I mean they have extant Palestinian populations even now so they were going there and did anyone get stabbed did anyone and and then you'll say don't be naive because every year and there are i'm just saying that if, if given how they wants to kill it he's going to be able to do it it's uh there's no there, there are like gaps in the wall there are people working settlements every day and of course they do happen but the idea that the wall is like the sole thing keeping terrorism at bay i i don't think that's true and this is again i want to just read it. it's not me downplaying the historical context and the, the wall is almost destroyed uh, whatever it is, but but also another thing I, I also ha- heard theorized by the way that they say that that at the time that the suicide bombing stopped, it was because there was like a negotiation with with Hamas to to not do so. But like I don't really get that because like why would Hamas like adhere to like you know there's ceasefires in like 2014 and then there's like a million violations. I don't know from which side, but I'm suing both. By I mean whatever it is there's all these um so i don't know but i heard that 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 was part of it but regardless i think that there was historical context and i don't think that's by definition needs to go on forever or that there's no moving on from this i mean every nation in history has had has had bloody uh sometimes centuries of conflict with their neighbors and there are people who you know reconcile it so that's my my take on that Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Daniel, Brother Brother Muhammad. What a pleasure. The, the conversation is not over. We're moving it to Discord. I'm going to drop the link one more time for those who don't have it yet. If you like what you see, please subscribe. We do this every Thursday. If you really like it, support us on Patreon. Uh, that it, it also gives you access to uh, some some cool benefits if you support us on Patreon. So that's awesome. Uh, once you join Discord, you'll see on the left-hand side, it says the lounge. That's where we do the after party. You click on the lounge, click it twice. Once to connect, 
twice to be able to see people who decide to turn their cameras on. May the after party begin with love from Tel Aviv, Israel. Thank, thank you, brother Adar. We'll join.